Hello everyone, and welcome to the August 18th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm David Jimenez, a partner with Floyd, Scarron and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The National Workers' Compensation Community has voiced concern about a Florida comp ruling that may become a national trend. A Miami-Dade judge ruled that Florida's workers' compensation law is unconstitutional, striking a severe blow to a law already under attack. No doubt this case has caught the attention of applicant attorneys nationwide, and the ruling may very well be a precursor to challenges here in California. The circuit judge declared Florida's long-disputed workers' compensation law unconstitutional. He reasoned that after the Florida state legislature so diminished medical care and wage loss benefits for incapacitated workers that the comp system now violates fundamental employee rights. His order said lawmakers had violated their side of the trade with workers where employees relinquish the right to sue in civil court after an injury, but then get fast, efficient, and no-fault justice. The case concluded that the purpose of a Workers' Compensation Act is not for it to be used as a weapon in an economic civil war. The case is based on a government office worker who claims the nearly 80-year-old law forces injured workers into Florida's legal system, which is so flawed it cannot provide adequate medical care or dollars to supplant lost wages. The ruling comes at a critical time for Florida's blue-collar and agriculture workers. Lawmakers and business leaders claim that rising workers' compensation premiums threaten to disrupt economic growth. Worker advocates argue the state allows widespread insurance fraud while responding to high premiums by penalizing workers. Workers' comp reform is a years-long controversy, becoming more prominent as worker rights attorneys ask judges as far as the Florida Supreme Court to strike down the state law permanently. If the ruling is appealed, this case joins a minimum of two other cases challenging the constitutionality of parts of the Florida Workers' Compensation Statute. The Florida Supreme Court is already considering an appeal filed by Bradley Westfall, a St. Petersburg firefighter with severe and disabling back injuries incurred in 2009. After temporary wage loss benefits had expired, Westfall was left with no income. Doctors through his insurance carrier said he could not seek work and the insurance carrier refused to provide benefits until doctors confirmed he would no longer improve medically. Later, the full court restored the law, but the case is now before the state's highest court. The Florida legislature made changes to workers' compensation in 1990, 1993, and 2003, removing large portions of injured workers' benefits. Lawmakers justify the reductions as necessary to keep Florida competitive with other states to retain or lure business. Since revisions to the law made in 2003, premiums dropped 56%. A new WCAB panel decision concluded that parties may stipulate to use an AME instead of the IMR process. Here's what happened in the case of Bertrand versus County of Orange. Carolyn Bertrand, who worked for the County of Orange, sustained an injury to her low back and neck. The case was resolved by way of stipulated findings and award 
and order in 2004. The stipulation agreed that the parties will return to the AME to resolve future medical care disputes. The issue at trial was whether the 2013 Labor Code changes creating the IMR process or the party stipulations control the resolution of medical treatment disputes. The WCJ found that the subsequent statutory change creating the IMR process to review a contest of a UR decision does not nullify the party's contractual waiver. The employer sought reconsideration contending that the WCJ's order to return to the AME asserting that the new IMR process supersedes the party stipulation to have the AME resolve treatment disputes. The WCAB concurred with the WCJ that the parties may contractually waive their right to pursue the statutory review process in favor of submitting disputes over medical treatment to a specified AME. However, the WCAB found the defendant must submit a request for medical treatment to UR before a dispute may be referred to the AME for resolution. The recent change to the IMR as a method of review of medical treatment disputes as provided in Labor Code Section 4610.6 does not supersede the party's stipulation. A change in law does not relieve a party from a lawfully entered stipulation. The Court of Appeal limited the definition of the Labor Code Section Power Press Exception in the case of Watrous versus Leafold Manufacturing Company. O'Neill Watrous suffered serious injuries while operating a Fen 5F swagging machine. He filed a civil complaint against his employer alleging a violation of Labor Code Section 4558, the Power Press Exception, to the exclusive remedy of workers' compensation. A Fen F5 swagging machine is used to reduce a larger diameter tube to a smaller diameter. The swagging operation uses a process whereby hammers are actuated within the machine and used against dies that change the shape to the end of the tube. The swagging process compresses the metal so that the end of the tube is smaller in diameter, thicker, and stronger than the rest of the tube. The door had been removed from the Fen 5F swagging machine at the time of the incident. Liefel brought his summary judgment motion asserting that the door was not a point of operation guard as a matter of law. The trial court denied the motion, but the Court of Appeal reversed in the published opinion. Section 4558S, exemption from workers' compensation exclusivity applies by the statute's own plain and express terms only to material forming machines utilizing a die. Machines using other types of tools to cut material are not within the statute's application, even if they would meet a regulatory agency's definition of power press. Labor Code Section 4558 provides its own definition of a power press, a definition that limits the category to machines using dies. Thus, the Court of Appeal rejected Watrous's attempt to import general industry safety regulation definitions into Section 4558. A peremptory writ of mandate issued directing the trial court to vacate its order denying Liefel's motion for summary judgment and enter a new and different order granting the summary judgment motion. And now our fraud report. The former assistant manager at an East Los Angeles Bank of America branch 
certainly sets an all-time high for hubris in, work, in the workplace. She first pretended to be a victim of armed assailants as she helped to rob the bank where she worked. Then, still playing the victim, she asked the bank to pay for her robbery-induced post-traumatic stress disorder. It all started when Barrera walked into her own bank branch wearing what she said was a bomb and persuaded her colleagues to empty the vault and leave the cash outside for her assailants. She claimed they had kidnapped her and held her at gunpoint before strapping explosives to her at her Huntington Park home. Barrero filed a PTSD claim two days later, and the bank's insurance company soon began paying out. The company paid her more than $35,000 in disability benefits and covered more than $9,000 in medical bills associated with the alleged workplace injury, according to to California Department of Insurance spokeswoman Nancy Kincaid. But the bomb was later discovered to be a fake, a flashlight wrapped in black electrical tape, and so was the rest of her story. Aurora Barrera, 33, had just been sentenced to nine years in federal prison for her role in the dramatic 2012 robbery when she was arrested last week on the additional charge of filing a fraudulent workers' compensation claim. Reyes, otherwise known as Ray Vega, 35 of Bell, was also convicted in March of conspiracy to commit bank robbery and bank robbery with a special allegation of assault by use of a dangerous weapon. Evidence presented during the four-day trial in Los Angeles federal court showed Vega masterminded the robbery, which netted about $565,000. The fake bomb was so convincing that after Barrera took the money from the safe, a Los Angeles County Sheriff's bomb robot was used to pry the device off the woman. Barrera's co-worker at the bank that day saw part of the license plate of the car that took the money away, according to prosecutors. Investigators identified the vehicle as belonging to the father of her then-boyfriend, Mr. Vega, and tracked his movements that day to a day's end. Security video shows the car and Vega meeting with two other men involved in the heist. On Thursday morning, police knocked on the door of her Downey home to settle one more account, workers' compensation fraud. Only a fraction of the $565,500 stolen from the bank has been recovered. Borrero faces up to another five years behind bars on the insurance fraud charge. Beauty pageant contestants often seek the spotlight, but it was a spotlight that proved to be incriminating evidence against the beauty pageant contestant collecting workers' compensation for a fractured toe. Shauna Palmer of Riverside Riverside started collecting workers' compensation benefits in March after fracturing her toe as a clerk at Stater Brothers Markets. Palmer said she could not place any weight on her foot, could not wear any type of shoe for a period of time, and could not move it in any direction. Palmer's doctor provided her with an orthopedic shoe and crutches and ordered her to refrain from working along with elevating her foot whenever possible. But a YouTube video of the 2014 Miss Toyota Long Beach Grand Prix beauty contest showed otherwise. She was seen walking around in high heels without any sign of discomfort. The 22-year-old Palmer participated in at least two beauty contests while collecting workers' compensation. 
Palmer was arrested after video evidence reveals her participation in a 2014 Miss Toyota Long Beach Grand Prix beauty contest. If convicted, Palmer faces up to one year in county jail, three years of probation, and must pay $24,000 in restitution. The raid last May on Southern California Dr. Robert A. Glazer capped a year-long investigation by the Medicare Fraud Strike Force. Many Strike Force investigations, including the Glazer case, start with an agent behind a computer screen, eyeing page after page of Medicare claims data looking for unusual billing patterns. David O'Neill, a Deputy Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division, said the team charged 36 doctors with health care fraud in 2013 compared with just three in 2007. The Los Angeles Strike Force team includes about 20 investigators and prosecutors working out of multiple offices, including a shiny tower in the suburbs near a strip mall dotted with family restaurants and chain stores. Last fiscal year, the Strike Force's nine offices charged 350 people with health care fraud up from 122 charged when the strike force had just two offices. One agent described dealing with a voluminous number of potential cases as whack-a-mole. Dr. Glazer attracted attention from authorities long before this year's charges. In 1994, he was indicted with six others for an alleged referral scheme between 1986 and 1993. The case was dismissed after a judge ruled that the prosecution's witness testimony was inadmissible. Glazer was never excluded from billing Medicare, but patient complaints over billing prompted CMS several years ago to place him on pre-payment review. That meant any claims made to, made to Medicare were manually reviewed by a CMS contractor, a measure intended to prevent improper billing. Dr. Glazer was removed from the review list around 2009. The strike force began investigating him again after sorting through years of his payment claims in the Medicare database. When agents cross-referenced his Medicare provider number, large billing numbers stood out. In an eight-year time period, Dr. Glazer's referrals to home health care companies resulted in billings to Medicare for $16.5 million and referrals to medical Equipment companies resulted in about billing of $5.4 million. Hospice services added about $10 million. Generally, referrals are more spread out between multiple providers. The volume of motorized wheelchair prescriptions in the data stunned the agents. As the investigation progressed, agents in unmarked cars drove to Glazer's clinic in Hollywood and watched. The agents interviewed patients drawn from the data and a common allegation emerged. Glazer was billing Medicare for patient services sometimes never rendered and farmed outpatients to other providers according to the indictment. And in regulatory news, the WCIRB intends to submit a premium rate filing to the California Insurance Commissioner recommending a 6.7% average pure premium rate increase. The proposed average pure premium rate reflects a deterioration of 4.4% from the WCIRB's indi indicated January 1st, 2014 average pure premium rate. 
Chief Actuary Dave Belushi cited several factors that are driving this deterioration, including continued adverse medical loss development, more complete recognition of long-term medical paid loss development patterns, continued high levels of indemnity claim frequency, higher than anticipated loss adjustment expense inflation in part attributed to less than projected frictional cost savings resulting from Senate Bill number 863 and lower wage growth than the original forecast. The WCIRB will continue monitoring insurance experience and may amend the filing once it is analyzed experience valued as of June 30th. The California Department of Insurance will schedule a public hearing to consider the filing. The Division of Workers' Compensation has posted the 2013 Ethics Advisory Committee's annual report on its website. The Workers' Compensation Ethics Advisory Committee is charged with reviewing and monitoring complaints of misconduct filed against workers' compensation administrative law judges. It is required to make a public report each year summarizing activities in previous calendar years. Workers' compensation judges are not subject to review by the California Commission on Judicial Performance, the agency which is responsible for investigating judges serving on a Supreme, Superior, and Appellate Courts. In 2013, the DWC had authority over 167 active judges in 24 district office locations. The Ethics Advisory Committee, or EAC, is composed of nine members, each appointed by the Administrative Director for a term of four years. The EAC is assisted in carrying out its functions by an attorney and secretary on the staff of the DWC. Any person may file a complaint with the EAC. Complaints must be presented in writing, and the EAC will accept anonymous complaints. This year, the EAC considered a total of 34 of the 37 new complaints it received in addition to three complaints pending from 2012. Most of the complaints were filed by unrepresented workers. A total of two were filed by applicant and defense attorneys. The EAC identified only one complaint of the 33 they reviewed that involved judicial misconduct. In that case, an unrepresented applicant complained that the judge threatened and harassed the complainant and the complainant claimed his well-being was in danger. The transcript of the hearing disclosed that the judge stated, if you interrupt me one more time, you will deeply regret it. I've been sitting trying to say things and you have been constantly interrupting me. I am on the bench and I will suffer no more interruptions. Complainant alleged that the judge said his this in a very loud voice. The committee found these comments to be a violation of the code of judicial ethics. And in other news, it seems as though the employers holdings California comp strategy has paid off. Employers holdings, the provider of workers compensation insurance in the Western United States stock price rallied after second quarter earnings beat analysts estimates. Officials reported that revenues increased 10% and earned premiums increased nearly 8%. The company is at a record high in the number of financial areas, including book value per share, the market value of its portfolio, total number of policies, and total in-force premium. Net earned premium was higher 
than last year driven by increases in policy count, average policy size, and net rate. The stock price jumped 11% after this news and narrowed the decline this year to 33%. Chief Executive Officer Douglas Dirks has been seeking to limit losses in California by raising prices and slowing policy count growth after higher than expected California claims in 2013. The sharp increase in open litigated indemnity claims that it experienced in the fourth quarter of 2013 in Southern California did not continue into the first or second quarters of this year. While the percentage of litigated indemnity claims in Southern California remained stable in the first two quarters of this year, it has experienced a decline in the number of new claims with legal representation at the outset of the claim. California continues to represent 60% of its total book in terms of enforced premium and 57% of total enforced policies. California policy count increased just 2.7% year over year at June 30th, and policy count in all of its states, excluding California, increased 5.1%. That's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcast and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm David Jimenez, a partner with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. And thanks for joining us today and drop by again next week for more news.